Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project, a podcast for maintenance and reliability people to better themselves both at home and at work. Now let's get rolling. Welcome to Rob's Reliability Project. I'm Rob Kalvaroski. Thank you for listening to the show. And if you enjoy the podcast, please subscribe to Rob's Reliability Project on your favorite podcast platform, as well as share it with your colleagues. If you're looking for more content, check out or follow Rob's Reliability Project on LinkedIn and Facebook for some different types of content and check out robsreliability.com as well. If you're looking for a short daily audio tip, subscribe to Rob's Reliability Tip of the Day on your favorite podcast platform. As well, it's also available on Amazon Alexa as a flash briefing. So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. Hey guys, I'm here again. We're back this week. I'm here with Andrew Curry. Andrew is down under, so he's actually in the future right now where I'm recording on a Monday afternoon. It's actually Tuesday morning. Andrew, how are you? <laughs> Very good. Thanks, Rob. Thank you uh, for inviting me on your, your, your podcast. No, thanks for coming on. So I guess we'll get into you a little bit and then we'll get into, you know, some reliability stuff. So first off, you know, you're a senior consultant for Enterprise Improvement Solutions Australia. Do you want to just give us a, a little introduction on Enterprise Improvement Solutions and kind of what you do for them? Yeah, look, I, I, I suppose I specialize in asset management and uh, operational excellence. We're an integrated business transformation company, basically. You know, we're passionate about working with clients and, um, you know, we look at delivering what we call real sustainable improvement solutions. Um, and we enjoy working with people. So, yeah, we specialize in that, I suppose, professional asset management and operational excellence space. Yeah, we've our company have been going, I think, for about nine or ten years now, and we've been engaged in different industry sectors. We've got experience in operational and maintenance of large scale fix and mobile plant. We work in around complex manufacturing, including uh, fast moving consumer goods, steel mining, raw materials processing, logistics warehousing, and the government. And we also dabble in uh, the area of the defence projects as well. So that's, um, in a nutshell, basically what we do at Enterprise IS. Awesome. And do you want to just give us a background? Like, how did you get your start in maintenance and reliability? Well, that goes back a, a fair while now. <laughs> um, so I initially started as a mechanical engineer in at the time. Uh, it was BHP Steel. Um, it's now... People know it as Bluescape Steel uh, at Port Kembla. So uh, I worked in various, I suppose, maintenance and reliability roles throughout my time there. And it was probably, I think I, I was in the steelworks for about 17 years. From that, I left steelworks there and uh, I moved into an operational role. I became the company's uh, divisional business improvement manager after I was put through some training in Lean Six Sigma. So that gave me my um, sort of foot into uh, that improvement space as well as, as having that maintenance and reliability uh, background. 
then later I, I left um, that particular company, went into a global consulting company and really stuck with asset management and, and operational improvement. Yeah, they both went hand in hand and uh, yeah, really enjoyed um, working with clients. Uh, I've done work in Canada, South America, I've been to Siberia, uh, Africa, um, yeah, and enjoyed all of it. And you see different things all the time. So yeah, no, I've, uh, I suppose that's, that's me in a nutshell um, from maintenance and reliability perspective. <laughs> so, so I mean, just before we jumped on, we were talking a little bit about, you know, Canada and Australia. So you did mention that the coldest you, well, not maybe when you were in Canada was around minus 15. Have you ever been any colder than minus 15 Celsius? Degrees Celsius? Well, actually, no, Canada, minus 15 was when I, when I flew in. I think the, the coldest I was there when I got to when I was there was minus 37. So... That was a bit chilly. I spent most of that time in the hotel room. I, I, I ventured out for a walk and, and found myself getting uh, the old ice cream headache, so I went back inside. I'm not actually prepared for that sort of weather, especially over here in Australia. I guess our thermals aren't as good as your thermals. <laughs> well, if you hit the Canadian tire in Saskatoon, you'd be all right. So. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, recently you've been working on some – FMEAs for a couple customers. Do you want to just give us an introduction? So for people listening, FMEA is failure modes and effects analysis. Do you want to give us just an introduction is what is an FMEA and kind of what should we be looking for? Like what's the output and what are we going to do with those? You mentioned FMEAs. I actually, I work to the, I suppose, the concept of, of um, Famica, which is, well, it's got the extra C in it, just um, because I work around criticality as well. It's not just about the, the effects and the analysis. Um, we build criticality into our Famicas. Um, so it's basically, uh, it, it's just a process. It's, and you're looking at failure modes, effects, and criticality analysis. It's, it's a structured approach to identify how a, a product or a process can fail. Um, it builds in risk and you estimate risk of a specific root cause of a failure. Um, it allows you to prioritise actions um, when you're looking at mitigating or reducing uh, a particular risk of a failure. Um, it's also used in actual evaluating design plans. So up front, you can actually, you've got two sorts of uh, Formica processes. You've got the process related, related Formica and you've also got design for makers. I've done both. You know, basically, your design for makers are coming into a, a a project. You get the drawings. The drawings are in that final construction phase. You can actually have a lot of your asset strategies built in place based on for makers that you've done before the projects even hit the go button. So, um, yeah. So I guess they can be used for evaluating design plans or any current control strategies that you have in place for existing assets as well yeah and like you know we've we've had a few people on like jesus cifonte was on uh last week and we've been talking about rcm and like fmea is essentially if you look at the top the seven questions of rcm fmea is the first five right yep and look and they're not new i mean they're used back in the aerospace aerospace industry back in the apollo missions um 
later in 74, they, uh, they actually developed military stands around it too, Rob. Um, and in the 70s, the automotive industry, uh, we all remember back that far, <laughs> they had a lot of li- liability costs around um, poor quality. Um, so for me, because we used back then as well. So I always use the bit of history around it um, when I'm facilitating them because, you know, you go into a, a room full of people that haven't been exposed to it and they think, that, what's this new flavour of the month? But I, I, as part of my intro, I give them a bit of history in the background of it. I mean, when you tell people it was involved in the Apollo missions and in the automotive industry in the 70s, they suddenly realise, oh, well, okay, wow, this has been around for a while. So um, it's not something new that they're just bringing in into the business. Um, it must be, you know, it's got some uh, validation behind it. So, absolutely, and I guess maybe I'll get your opinion on it because clearly you you've you do do an introduction. So we've kind of had a little bit of a debate on LinkedIn this week about when you're doing a facilitation, how much does your or does the facilitated group need to know? And like we were talking specifically about RCM, but. If we're looking at FMEA, like, do we need to teach them the bathtub curves? Do we need to teach them what a failure mode is, what a failure effect is? Like, what? How much? What's your thoughts on that? Well, I certainly give people a bit of background around the process um, and and why we don't do certain aspects of the process. Only for me, if I was exposed to something brand new when I come into a room and they expected me to be part of that process, I want an understanding of what that, you know, how that process was developed. Um, and so, you know, when you're talking about failure modes and you've got, you know, you know you've got your subject matter experts in the room and you've got, you know, tradesmen and you, know, you could potentially have operators, supervisors, managers. When you're talking about failure modes, not every, everyone understands what a failure mode is or a root cause, you know, what's a root cause? So I always give a bit of an introduction just so those people know the terminology. So as you're facilitating the process, um, you know, you're getting the best out of them. Um, because at the end of the day, the, the process is only as good as the people that it comes from. And, and I take no credit for any of the work that I've done internationally uh, when I've done for Mika's. It's, it's, you know, it's the people in the room. That's, that's where, that's where the, the, the benefit comes from the process. <laughs> you know, that's that's something I, I talk about in reliability a fair amount is we don't know anything. We're just the people who write it down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I guess, you know, while we're while we're talking about it, like what is the process for a FAMICA? So I guess the process for me starts, well, you could go back one step and there's all the prep work to do with it. Um, and for me, you know, you, you want to have, a lot of your failure information, PNIDs, current control documentation, like you know, could be what 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 inspections are there, you know, for the for the team to use. And then you know, once you get all that pre work done, then as you know, you've got your your Famica, um, template there. You know, it's start to hit the ground running with the the team that you got. So I suppose the first point would be really for each process function, and look you. For me, I'll start with the high, high critical process functions first. We determine the way in which the function can go wrong, and that's where we, you know, we start to use the term 
the file you made. So how, how does it, an asset fail? Next, for each of those failure modes, we, we go through and we determine the effects of the failure. So I guess that's the E. And as part of that, and this comes back to the criticality, you also select a, a severity level for each of the effects using, I, I generally have a criticality scale set up. The third point would be identifying potential root causes for each of the failure modes. Now, you might have a particular failure mode and it might have multiple root causes. So you, you, you list those out and you select the occurrence levels for each of the root causes. Now, when I mean by that, having one failure mode and multiple root causes, each of those root causes, the reason we, we address the occurrence, one of those root causes might occur weekly, another root cause might occur you know, once every six months. So we risk rank those as well and, and give it a score in terms of occurrence. Uh, and then we go through and we list out the current controls for each of the root causes. That's, you know, that's if they've got any. You would hope they've got some, but anyway, based on that, we select a detection level for each of the root cause. So how hard um, is it to actually, can you, can you see that root cause? You know, potentially you've got to put some condition monitoring in place. From that, we calculate out the risk priority number or RPN we call it, um, and basically it's just a calculation of the severity, the occurrence and the detection that I just mentioned, which allows you to prioritise the failure modes with, a, with that criticality score. So it gives you a bit of a tool to look at, you know, where your high, highly critical assets are failing. You can focus, you, you might come out with a, with a big list of uh, actions to put in place, so it allows you to work on the highly critical ones first. From that, then you develop uh, recommended actions to mitigate those risks and assign people um, to you know, implement those actions. Now, you, like I said, you'd give priority to those high RPNs first. You know, they're the must, the must looks at, you must look at. Um, and you also, the other, the other part, you look at the, uh, any severities that you've got risk ranked as high you should look at those first because obviously you're rating the effect of the, the failure mode as a high. Some of the tips I would I look back on uh, in terms of when you're uh, implementing actions, use the hierarchy of control. Try and, if you can, eliminate a uh, particular defect. If you can eliminate the defect completely, it's, that's, that's the ideal scenario, right? Select components with high reliability reduce the risk of a, a failure mode failing, potentially reduce the stress level that a critical component operates at. So, you know, if you're driving, a, if you realise that you're getting a lot of um, failures, you know, if you can reduce the stress, stress on, on an asset, then look at doing that as well. And if you can, add redundancy or any type of condition monitoring. It also enable you to re reduce the uh, RPNs. So after you implemented any of your actions, so I guess this is the final bit, you can then go back and rate your severity, occurrence and detection again. And then you compare the two RPNs and have a look what it was pre-implementation, I suppose, and, and look at how you ranked it. And then after you've implemented those mitigating actions, you go back and re-review. So yeah, I suppose they're the, probably the key steps. Yeah, no, that, that's a great list. And, and, you know, it's something that like I've been asked at a few conferences 
people, they, they come up to you and they go, you know, like we learn all these techniques like RCM, FMEA, like all these different things. Like what should reliability engineers actually do? All the acronyms. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like the answer to like, what should we be doing? It really, like you, you kind of hit the nail on the head, right? It's we should be reducing risk. Yeah, no, definitely. Look, um, I go back to my days of Lean Six Sigma training and, and I had all of this theory first from one particular company that, that trained us up um, and the company I was working for at the time. So they brought in a master black belt who then brought in another trainer. And he probably very along the lines of what you've just said there. He said to us, he said, um, well, why are you doing all this? I mean, remember, what's the end game? It's about improving, isn't it? So why are you putting together all these scatter graphs and all this sort of stuff? At the end of the day, you pick the easiest route. And if you can implement a sustainable solution, why do you go and do all of this other stuff that just is really just noise? Um, and he made it, he makes a good point because at the end of the day, it's just really about improving in it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it like, you know, kind of on that note, right? Like you've worked th like through transitioning a company from a reactive program to a proactive program, right? And so like in terms of thinking that way, like really what you're doing is you're solving a lot of the the cultural issues, but you're saving the money, you're reducing risk of failure. Do you want to give us kind of a background of like, how do you get started in that transition from reactive to proactive? It's a hard one because I mean, every company is different, right? And it, and it depends on the level of maturity of the organization. I mean, I've worked in, in different businesses and um, I've been national reliability manager and I've been engineering maintenance manager and I, I can give you two different examples. I mean, I work for a company as engineering maintenance manager, and and um, when I first came in, you know, I had I had the maintenance organisation um, set up. So you know, I had planners, schedulers, uh, supervisors. I had shift crews. Um, so I had had the support structure around me, um, but they were still only operating. Um, with a PM completion rate of 22%. Now, when you think about it, what are the what are the things that will stop you from failing? It's your PMs. Um, they're the things that you know. People people see them as 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 a piece of paper that go out there and it's just a tick and flick. But realistically, um, it's it's not a tick and flick, and and, and it's a cultural thing. So, part of that, um, I suppose. Uh, journey with the guys was to try and change their their thought process um, in, in terms of what they had to do. So we ended up one of the one of the things I found was that uh, when they would go out to do their PMs and look, they're only doing what they think is right, and uh, they they were going out and I use the I use the squeaky gate analogy. These guys go out with their PMs every night. They go to do their inspections, and an operator comes up to them and says, "Look, I've got this squeaky gate over here, right? Um, do you think you can come over and, and and fix it for me?" And 
being the, the good blokes that they are, that then they go over and they fix the gate. But they've only got eight hours in their shift. And all of a sudden, they've been allocated a certain amount of work, PMs inclusive, and they run out of time. So what gets dropped? The PMs. Now, some of those PMs might be on critical assets. And um, so the way I, I worked around that, I actually set up some sort of decisional, um, I suppose, hierarchy in terms of how uh, guys would make decisions about what they had to drop and what they what they what was mission critical, I suppose. So basically, I uh, I put out these little, I suppose you could call them cheat cards. If they ever had someone that came to them um, that said, "Look, I need something fixed," you know, is it urgent? I mean, is it is it stopping the process? No. Okay. Is it urgent? Can it be fixed in um, you know, the next two days? Well, we could slot it into the schedule. Um, can it be planned a week ahead? Well, yeah, it probably could. Then, you know, we don't drop work. So it's all about just prioritising what's important and what's not important. Um, and straight away, and, and doing a bit of training from not only just, it's not all just about maintenance either, um, the operators as well, the operations staff, um, training them in terms of why we were, I suppose, um, if any any of my guys went to them and and declined to do something, then um, there was a reason for it. It wasn't just that um, they not nah, sorry, I've got to do my my job. Um, there was an understanding that they had a process to follow um, because at the end of the day they were scheduled work to do, and that work you know, might have only just been an inspection, but it was an important inspection on an important piece of equipment that potentially, and we found this, that, you know, I would I would find that something would fail a week later and then find that a week prior it was due to be inspected, but because of something else, um, of course, the inspection got dropped. Uh, so, yeah, look, we went from, I suppose, 22% up to about... 90% completion, um, less failures, uh, yeah, and that, that, that changed that particular um, scenario. Uh, I've got another example whereby you, you work with a company that I've, I've worked with that was, I suppose, less mature, um, not as well structured in terms of a support structure in maintenance, and that was really about... Um, uh, you've got to have a, a good support structure for a liability program, right? So, you know, this this particular company didn't have, um, so they had uh, non-technical admin staff planning because they felt that a, the planning function was just an admin function. Um, they had no maintenance schedules, so they just created job lists. They weren't prioritised. Um, so, you know, how do you how do you prioritise what's important in terms of an asset if you not don't have a schedule? You just got a list, so potentially you're getting that squeaky gate fixed, and you're not getting one of your major elevators or conveyors fixed. What what I saw was a maintenance manager was categorised as a maintenance supervisor. Um, now he was doing three jobs: he was managing a budget, he was managing a team of about fifty guys as well. So. The communication with him and the guys wasn't that that great because 
he's not only managing a budget and and I suppose managing his organisation. Um, the expectation was he was also meant to supervise. He was also supposed to check quality of work and where the work was completed. And on top of that, in his spare time, he had to plan as well. So you've got a guy doing three jobs and, you know, you can only do one right. Um, so whether it's he manages well, manages the budget well, and, you know, work quality is not being checked, jobs aren't being ticked off, you know, schedules aren't being created, um, jobs aren't being planned well. And so at the end of the day, that budget he's managing is probably going to increase because, you know, costs are just going to blow out through the, you know, poor managing of spares or breakdowns or whatever it might be. So, yeah, look, there's not a, there's not a one, one size fits all story in regards to what's, what's proactive and what's reactive. Um, like I said, you know, one had the support structure, but it just needed a bit um, around, I suppose, guidance in terms of what was important. Another one didn't have the support structure, but, you know, that, that needed to put in place because it, up front I was asked, you know, they spoke, they talked the talk, they, they talked about Famicas and RCAs when I first started, and I said, yeah, yeah, I can do all of that. So I suppose the end game for that particular case was, you know, develop your structure with capability there. So we recruited planners um, and put them in place. So we had good quality work orders going out. We created three week out schedules. We created schedule meetings with operations. So there was a good communication flow between maintenance and operations. And then after all that was done, then we went back and we looked at PM optimization. So we, we, we used the Famica process to make their PMs better. So that was, I suppose, we needed to get that support structure right first before we, we got the back end uh, around what was basically in their CMMS. No, that, that was great. And I mean, like what you were talking about there is, is in my opinion, is, is completely correct, right? Like you can't start with doing the PMOs and the RCAs and all that stuff before you really have the fundamental aspects of your maintenance program together, right? So you have to have the people, you got to have the training, you got to have, you know, good work orders and like, tr and uh, procedures and just the fundamental stuff. And then once you have that in place, it's just, you're just building a pyramid, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. About capability building. So I, I guess when we're when we're talking about that, like when you go into a plant, like how what are you looking for to assess what fundamentals they have, what they don't have? Like obviously you mentioned PM compliance as a metric, but are you like how are you gauging the other stuff? When I go in, I I basically I I don't go in and review systems first. I I, I look. I go in and look at um, you know, how they're managing their assets, how the relationship is between maintenance and operations. Are they having maintenance and planning meetings, for example? You know, so we, there's a communication um, between the two. I suppose to have a reliability program as a sustainable improvement, it's, it's, um, it's not just about having a, a really good technical solution you've got to have the acceptance of the program in place. You know, you've got to engage the right people 
and build the capability. I mean, that's that's a, that's my personal opinion on, on what I think would be to really bridge those gaps to have a successful program. So do you find that maintenance is most of the time at odds with operations? I've always said in the all the clients I work with and, and particularly operations that I've gone into, reliability is not about maintenance. Reliability, I suppose, is a, to me is a holistic thing. You know, an operator can be the can be the cause of a, a reliability based issue. So, I really stress when we when these run these Fameka sessions, we've got operations people in the room, and I've been doing some stuff over in New Zealand just lately um, with a client over there, and you know, we've got an operations guy in the room, and we're getting some really good stuff. We look at a failure mode, we've got failure modes due to operations as well. So it's not just failure modes due to the asset or the way we maintain an asset, it's the way we operate assets as well. Yeah, no, 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 that's for sure. And like, let's let's just hammer that point home. So operators have impact on reliability. Obviously, maintenance folk have impact on reliability, but let's take it a step further and say, you know, even the purchasing people have impact on reliability given if they purchase a crappy asset in the first place. Or, you know, one thing that I've been kind of hammering lately, at least when I've been out on the road, was the, you know, the storeroom itself. So like acceptance testing, are you actually like your storeroom itself? Like, are you ruining it before you put it into the plant when it's sitting on the shelf? So there, there's a lot of steps in there that, like a lot of us, like when I, when I started my career, we, we sort of worked in, in the maintenance department. So like reliability was kind of a maintenance function. It's, it's, you gotta, you gotta think broader than just maintenance. No, absolutely. You're right. You know, when you look at, I suppose, if you talk defect elimination um, and you, you go back to your point there around manufacturing, um, you know, you don't, develop specifications for example you use the old, old saying you know you get what you get and you don't get upset because if you don't specify what you want then you're going to get what they give you <laughs> that's a good point that's for sure when when you look when you look at companies like what are some things that that you see that companies don't do well that kind of impacts their reliability being too maintenance focused and sort of lacking operational involvement it's important to note that you know not like i said before you know not all failures are maintenance related relate in relation to famicas um, when they're doing a famica famica fails to drive the improvement some companies just see as a tick in the box to be compliant but you really got to want to improve and you got to take the action and you got to embed it so I look at it as it's a cultural thing. Um, also, in regards to Famicas, you know, it, it doesn't address all of the high-risk value modes. The Famicas done in a real generalised sort of level, and that's why I build criticality into the Famicas that I do because you need to focus on on risk. Um, basically, any areas that are mission critical, and you know. Famicas are carried out on low critical assets like, yeah, at the end of the day, potential low ranked assets, you, you might want to run them to fail. So, 
you, know, you could go through the process of looking at all of the potential failure modes on a on a low critical asset, and you'd be wasting your time. So, to, the, to, to avoid this, um, you know what I generally do um, is I carry out uh, a high level asset criticality assessment first, and that drives you to where you should focus your Fameka efforts. So, um, so. A lot of people don't do that as part of the steps in the process, um, and I think a lot of time can be burnt by doing Fumikas on things that really they don't need to do them. I suppose doing Fumikas too late as well, uh, and fortunately a lot of companies choose to do Fumikas due to poor performance, which is unfortunate, when ideally it should be done in a, the design phase of a project, so really um, built into the project, not an afterthought. And I suppose lastly, it's really not having the right engaged cross-section of people in a team. Like I said before, you know, the, the case where I'm just working in New Zealand, you know, we've got operations guys in the team and we're getting some great input from those guys and um, stuff that's really going to help them out moving forward. So, And then I, I suppose in addition to that, there's that management support. So, yeah, we really needs to be driven from a management level as well, um, and it needs to have management support. So it's no good having a bunch of supervisors and operators in the room who are the subject matter experts that know what the failure modes are. And then we get a list of actions that really don't get implemented and um, they aren't really supported. So, you know, management support is 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 critical as well. And, and would you find that you know, a lot of the time when you do a Famica that you don't get the, like the implementation done? I suppose as a consultant, no, um, because generally people are paying me because they want to improve. From a, a person personally working in an operation um, that I have done in the past and, and doing Famicas, you know, it depends on the persons you, you're dealing with. Some guys, you know, they just want to get better. Some guys are doing it because they've been told to do it, which you know, slows things up a lot and, you know, you find yourself making a lot of phone calls to see how things are going. And um, Yeah, look, it, it's tough when you're doing it in, a, in an operation or on your own and it's part of your role. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you just try got to try and engage people to say, well, you know, this is going to help you. Um, and you've got to look to, I suppose, um, encourage them the best you can and um, I suppose give them as much evidence as possible in terms of um, you know, successes from past areas. <laughs> That's always the fun part. It's about, it's about, it's about selling it, Rob. <laughs> Every, you know, the more the more I come into my career, you know, the more you learn that the the technical knowledge is really the easy part, and it's it's the sales, the people part, the EQ, that's the real tough part. Yep, yep. It's, it, it's all about acceptance. I mean, you can have the best, um, you can have the capable people, and you can have all of the, the the technical solutions, but if you haven't got acceptance for them, then you're just wasting your time. Yep, no doubt about that. So the the last question I got you got for you before we get you out of here is I've been, you know, at a bunch of conferences lately and you know kind of the hot topics are, you know, augmented reality, virtual reality, machine learning, even recently 
we've been talking about the blockchain too. So, you know, with all that technology coming into the reliability space, where do you see reliability going over the next like two to five years? Yeah, look, I, I think VR is, a, is, you know, it's a fantastic example of technology to, you know, reduce human error um, just by allowing operators gain experience with simulations. I mean, it, it, they do it in the mining industry and that, um, I think, I think you'll probably see it um, more prevalent uh, moving on in the next two to five years. I also think, you know, that AR and VR tech, um, you know, while they have their place and, and can be advantageous, so I think it's it's really in the development research phases at the moment. So, you know, from an issue point of view, I think unfamiliarity with that tech, uh, that uh, sort of tech um, in the next two to five years, you'll probably see a, um, with industries taking up the tech, you probably see a lot of upskilling of, of engineers. Um, yeah, yeah, obviously, it's all about that capability building again. Um, and if it, it, you know, it is coming on and in early days, um, we'll probably see is a lot of uh, probably a lot of new courses coming up. Um, and look, I also think with the increase availability of um, I was at the mainstream conference that we have over here. It's one of the biggest asset management conferences that we have in Australia last year, and um, we had a, a gentleman from the US talking about um, big data. Now, he'd worked with the CIA and a few of those types of organisations, um, and I think with the availability of big data over the last couple of years, there's going to be more emerging technology in uh, predictive analytics for data. And that, and that'll just, you know, that, that just means that it's going to give operators and maintainers more clarity for better decision-making and, and fault-finding, I think. Yeah, no doubt about that. And, and like, it's the same thing, right, is is that decision-making, it's like if we can make be- better decisions, we can reduce the risk. It all comes full circle, so. Absolutely, absolutely. With things like, um, you know, VR and, and AR, you know, and you mentioned risk, you know, if you can go fault finding and not have to stick your head in the machine, then, uh, you know, that puts people out of harm's way as well. So, yeah, no, that's for sure. And even if we like eventually it'll be coming is if we can control a robot to do the work while we're sitting in in an office or somewhere safe, then that's probably a potential coming up soon, too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Perfect. So, you know, Andrew, I want to thank you for coming on. Do you have anything to plug? Like, should people follow you on LinkedIn? Uh, where can they find you? That kind of stuff. Yeah, look, um, I suppose we'll be at the mainstream conference here in uh, Melbourne, in Australia, on the, I think it's August the 12th and 13th. So, look, please pop in and see us. Um, we'll be there for that. Um, our website uh, we've got a website as well, www.enterpriseis.com.au. Um, you can pop and see some of the stuff and there's case studies there and that sort of stuff. So have a look at the website. Uh, yeah, Enterprise Improvement Solutions Australia Proprietary Limited is our LinkedIn page. So please uh, um, connect up to us or even me personally, myself, Andrew Curry. I've got a, a LinkedIn page too. Um, yeah, by all means send me a, a invite to, to network.
Perfect. Yeah. So if you're listening, uh, Andrew's LinkedIn will be in the podcast notes or they'll be, if obviously he'll be tagged on the posts on LinkedIn as well. You know, Andrew, thanks for coming on. No, thank you, Rob. It's been a, a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. I enjoyed it. And, you know, next time I'll have to ask you where, where the hottest temperatures that you've been in were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, well, um, there has been some of those too. We have some, we had some good temperatures over in uh, Western Australia, up around the Pilbara region. It's, um, it's probably, it's probably the opposite of where I've been in, uh, in Canada. Yeah, it's, it's, not like Saskatoon or Siberia, that's for sure. No, no, but look, Siberia was a pleasant, probably 22 degrees. I was lucky I was there in summer, but uh, uh, no, Saskatoon was minus 37, but I've been up around the, the 45s in the Pilbara in uh, Western Australia. So, yeah, had both ends of the scale. That's right. Nothing but pain. <laughs> All right, so everyone still listening, I appreciate you listening so much and spending your time with me.